Hello and welcome back to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor. So, we've had a lot of uh, true crimey stuff recently. So, this time, I'm going to tell you about some badass animals. I've got a few announcements real quick. First of all, our Patreon is now finally online. And you can find that at patreon.com slash blood on the rocks. And I've had a couple of eager people sign up already. So thank you, Chris and Laura, with your $10 pledges. But yeah, so thank you so much. Um, I'll give a quick rundown of uh, the Patreon thing at the end of the show. Um, but I don't want to have the intro go on too long. So we'll have that afterwards. For US listeners, uh, we now have a merch store, which you can find at botrpodcast.threadless.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently working on getting a UK-based store under like sorted as well so if so if you're around the uk just uh wait a little bit and hopefully i'll be able to get something sorted out that way just so shipping costs be a bit nicer but yeah with that you can get like like you can get all sorts of weird merch you can get t-shirts tank tops hoodies lounge pants blankets mugs bags notebooks all sorts of in- fun and interesting things uh you can plaster our logo all over Oh, and also we have jo- we have joined the Medley Podcast Network, which um, hasn't had its hard release yet, so I'll leave it at that for now. I'm pretty excited. And uh, on that, I think we'll cut to a promo. And this week we have a promo for Wine and Crime, and I'll see you in a few minutes. Hey, true crime fans, have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, Crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers! And we are back. So, the first story I have for you is the 1925 Serum Run to Gnome, also known as the Great Race of Mercy, which has a whole lot of badass dogs going for it. So, let's get right into it, shall we? Bit of background first. Gnome is a place about 2 degrees south of the Arctic Circle in, in Alaska. Now, it, like at the time of this event, it was a lot smaller than its peak um, at the turn of the 20th century where it had about 20,000 people. I mean, it was currently still the largest town in Alaska um, in 1925 when this happened, but it was only made up of 455 Alaska natives and 975 settlers of European descent, as demand for the area had decreased a lot after the gold rush days. Now, pretty damn cold area. From November to July, the port on the southern shore of the um, peninsula of the Bering Sea was icebound, 
and inex- and inaccessible by steamship. Uh, so the place was pretty cut off, and its only link to the rest of the world during the winter was the Iditarod Trail, which ran 938 miles, that one and a half thousand kilometers, um, from the port of Seward to the, uh, in the south, across a lot of mountain ranges, uh, and the Alaska interior before it reached Nome. Now, um, about about a decade from here, bush pilots would be the dom- the main method of transport transportation during winter but at the time of the event the the main source of mail and supplies was the dog sled and with mail from outside alaska being transported 420 miles by train from the ice-free port of seaward to nanana which was then transported uh, 674 miles from nanana to Nome by dog sled which normally took 25 days now coming up to the event um, in the winter of 1924-25, the town only had one doctor by the name of Curtis Welch, who was supported by four nurses at the 25-bed Maynard Columbus Hospital. And in December 1924, several days after the last ship left the port uh, for the winter, uh, Welch tr- treated a few children uh, for what he first diagnosed as sore throats or tonsillitis. However, in the next few weeks, as number of cases of tonsillitis grew and four children died uh, that he wasn't able to autopsy, Welch became increasingly concerned about uh, diphtheria, which was a highly contagious disease, which and he didn't expect it at first, as you'd expect to see the same symptoms in family members or other cases around the town. Now, this was problematic, um, as several months earlier, uh, Welch had paid, placed an order for more diphtheria and toxin uh, after discovering that the hospital's entire batch had expired, but the shipment did not arrive to, uh, before the port closed for the winter, uh, so he wouldn't be able to order any more till spring. Now, diphtheria, uh, just to give you a quick rundown on it, it's the symptoms usually start within about two to seven days after infection, uh, where and symptoms include a fever of 38 degrees Celsius or above, uh, which is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Chills, fatigue, bluish skin coloration, uh, sore throats, hoarseness, coughs, headaches, difficulty swallowing, difficulty breathing, rapid breathing, uh, foul-smelling and blood-stained nasal discharge, and abnormal-sized lymph nodes. Uh, Within two or three days, diphtheria can destroy health uh, healthy tissues in the respiratory system uh, and causes the dead tissue to form a thick grey coating which builds up in the throat or the nose. Now this can cover tissues in the nose, tonsils, voice box and throat making it hard to breathe and swallow uh, and can also cause cardiac arrhythmias, inf- inflammation of heart muscle and, um, yeah, and cranial and peripheral nerve paralysis and tremors. Death generally occurs in t- 5 to 10% of those affected. Now, before the 1980s, about a million cases a year uh, are believed to have occurred. Though nowadays, like in 2015, only about 4,500 cases were reported worldwide. So a lot less of an issue nowadays. But getting back to looking back around to Welch, by mid-January 1925, he officially diagnosed the, the first case of diphtheria in a three-year-old boy who died only two weeks after first becoming ill. Uh, the following day, a seven-year-old girl presented the same symptoms. Welsh attempted to administer some of the expired antitoxin to see if it might have any effects, 
but the girl died a few hours later regardless. He then realised that an epidemic was imminent and the same evening organised a an emergency town council meeting with Mayor George Maynard, uh, to which the council implemented a quarantine. The next day, January 22, uh, Welch sent radio telegrams to all of major towns in Alaska, alerting them of, of the public health risk, and he also sent one to the US Public Health Service in Washington, D.C., asking for assistance. His message read, An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxins. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. I have made an application for, to Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already. Stop. There are about 3,000 white natives in the, in the district. Because, yeah, that's what they cared about, obviously. Now, despite the, despite the quarantine, there are over 20 confirmed cases of diphtheria and at least 50 more at risk by the end of January. Uh, without any antitoxin, it was, it was expected that in the surrounding region's population of about 10,000 people, the mortality rate could be close to 100%, with a previous influenza pandemic of the so-called Spanish flu hitting the area in 1918 and 1919, uh, which wiped out 50% of the native population of Nome and 8% of the native population of Alaska, with more than 1,000 people dying in northwest Alaska and double across the state. Now, the majority, with the majority of these being Alaska natives who didn't have resistance to either of these diseases, uh, as they hadn't really come into contact with them. So January 24 comes along, and there's a meeting of the Board of Health. And at this, Superintendent Mark Summers of the Hammond Consolidated Gold Fields proposed a dog sled relay using two fast teams. Uh, one would start at Nanana and the other at Nome, and they'd meet at uh, Nulato. The trip from Nulato to, N- to Nome normally took 30 days, uh, with the record being 9. Welch calculated that the serum would only last 6 days under the, br- under the conditions of the trail, uh, being extremely harsh. Mark Summers' employee, uh, the Norwegian Leonard Sipala, was chosen for the 630-mile uh, round trip from Nome to Nulato and back, uh, which was about 1,014 kilometres. Uh, he'd previously made the run from, from Nome to Nulato in record-breaking four days, uh, had won the All-Alaska Sweepstakes three times, uh, and had become extremely well-known for his athletic ability and... Um, rapport with his Siberian Huskies, uh, with his lead dog, 12-year-old Togo, being equally famous for his leadership, intelligence, and ability to sense danger. Mayor Maynard uh, also proposed flying the antitoxin by aircraft, as in February 1924, the first winter aircraft flight in Alaska had been conducted between Fairbanks and Regraf by Carl Ilson. Um, the longest flight was only 260 miles, and the worst conditions were minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 20 degrees Celsius, which required so much winter clothing that the plane was almost unflyable, and the plane actually made several crash landings. The only pla- And the only planes operating in Alaska in 1925 were three vintage standard J biplanes, uh, which had been dismantled for winter, had open cockpits, uh, and had water-cooled engines that were unreliable in cold weather. Um, and since both pilots were in the United States, the Board of Health voted unanimously for the dog sled relay, over having an inexperienced pilot. Sipala uh, was notified that evening and immediately made preparations for the trip. Now, the US Public Health Service had located 1.1 million units of serum in West Coast hospitals, which could be shipped to Seattle and then transported to Alaska. The Alameda would be the next ship north and would not arrive in Seattle till January 31st, and then would take another six to seven days to arrive in Seward. On January 26th, uh, 300,000 forgotten units were discovered in Anchorage Railroad Hospital, 
when the chief of surgery, John Beeson, heard of the need. This supply was wrapped in glass vials, which were wrapped in padded quilts, and finally a metallic cylinder weighing a little more than 20 pounds. And at Governor Scott Bone's order, it was packed and handed to, to conductor Frank Knight, who arrived in Nanana in, on January 27. And while it wasn't enough to beat the epidemic, the, the 300,000 units could hold it at bay until the largest shipment arrived. Another issue with this um, was that temperatures across the interior of Alaska were at 20-year lows, and in Fairbanks, the temperature was minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about minus 46 degrees Celsius. And a second, and a second system was with 25 mile per hour um, winds sweeping snow into 10 foot drifts. Um, travel by sea was was dangerous, and across the interior, most forms of transportation had shut down. And in addition to this, there were limited hours of daylight to fly, uh, due to the due to the polar night. Uh, while the first batch of serum was travelling to Nana, Governor Bone gave final authorization to the dog relay, but ordered Ed Edward Wetzler, uh, the US Post Office inspector, to arrange a relay of the best drivers and dogs across the interior. Uh, the teams would travel night, day and night until they handed off the package at, to Sapada at Nilato. So, let's get on to the relay, shall we? Which is the main bulk of this. So... The mail route from Nanana to Nome spanned 674 miles, crossing the barren Alaska interior, following the Tanana River for 137 miles, um, to the village of Tanana at the junction of the Yukon River, and then following the Yukon for 230 miles to Caltag, uh, before passing west 90 miles over the Caltag portage to Unalakleet on the uh, shore of Norton Sound. The route then continued 208 miles northwest along the southern shore of the Seaward Peninsula, with no protection from gales or blizzards, um, including a 42-mile stretch uh, across the shifting ice of the Bering Sea. The first musher of the relay was Wild Bill Shannon, who was handed the 20-pound package uh, at the train station in Nanana on January 27. At 9 p.m. at night, uh, despite temperatures of minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 46 degrees Celsius, Shannon immediately left with his team of 11 inexperienced dogs, led by a dog called Blackie. The temperature began to drop, and the team was forced onto the colder ice of the river because the trail had been destroyed by horses. And despite jogging alongside the sled to keep warm, Shannon developed hypothermia. He reached Minter at 3 a.m. six hours later with parts of his face black from frostbite. The temperature at, at this point was minus 62 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 52 degrees Celsius. He warmed the serum by the fire and rested for four hours, before dropping three dogs and leaving with the remaining eight. These three dogs died shortly after Shannon returned for them, uh, with a fourth potentially dying as well. Now, uh, Edgar Calland uh, had arrived in Minto the night before and was sent back to Tolovana, uh, travelling 70 miles the day before the relay. Shannon and his team arrived in bad shape at 11am uh, and handed over the serum. They warmed the serum in the roadhouse before Caledon headed into the forest. The temperature had risen to minus 56 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 49 degrees Celsius and according to at least one report, the owner of the roadhouse uh, at Manly Hot Springs had to pour water over Callan's hands to get them off the sled's handlebar when he arrived at 4pm. 
No new cases of diphtheria were diagnosed on January 28th, but two more were diagnosed on January 29th. The quarantine had been obeyed, but the lack of diagnostics and contagious and the contagiousness of the strain uh, basically rendered that ineffective. Uh, more units of the serum were discovered around Genoa the same day, and no one no existed exists. It was about enough to treat four to six patients. Yeah, and the crisis had basically become new- headline news in newspapers and had hit the radio sets. The storm system from Alaska uh, also hit the United States at this point, bringing record lows to New York and freezing the Hudson River. On January 30, a fifth death occurred. At this point, Mainland and Sutherland also renewed their campaign for flying the remaining serum by plane as well. I won't go too much into that because it's going to go on forever if I go into literally everything. So, however, this also meant that um, in response, but. Uh, Byron decided to speed up the relay and authorised additional drivers for Sapala's leg of the relay so that, they could, that, so that they could travel without any rest. Uh, though Sapala was still scheduled to cover the most dangerous leg, which was the shortcut across Norton Sound. But the telephone and telegraph systems bypassed uh, the small vill- villages that he was passing through, so there was no way to tell him to wait at, at Shatalik, and the plan essentially relied on the driver from the north catching him on the trail. Summers also arranged for drivers along the last leg, including uh, Sipala's colleague Gunnar Kassen. From Manly Hot Springs, the serum uh, passed through a lot of uh, local Athabascan hands before, uh, before George Nolner delivered it to Charlie Evans at Bishop Mountain on January 30 at 3am. The temperature had warmed slightly, but was dropping again, hitting uh, minus 52 degrees Celsius or minus 62 degrees Fahrenheit. Evans essentially re- uh, relied on his lead dogs when he passed through ice fog, where the uh, Koyukuk River had broken through and surged over the ice. But he forgot to protect the groins of his two short-haired mixed-breed dogs with rabbit skins, and both dogs collapsed with frostbite, um, with Evans having to take their place himself for, uh, pulling the sled. When he arrived at 10am, both of his dogs were dead, and... Thomas Patsy, uh, who received the serum, departed within half an hour. The serum then crossed the Celtic Portage in the hands of Jack Nikolai and the Alaska native Victor Anagik, who handed it, who handed it to his fellow native Miles Gunningen on the shores of the Sound at Unalakleet, which one one of these is probably right. Pronunciations are hard, man. At Unalak at Unalakleet on January 31st at 5am. He saw the signs of a storm brewing and decided not to take the shortcut across the ice of the sound and departed at 5.30. Snow from the whiteout conditions um, essentially made the dogs appear like they were fording a fast-running river. Um, Though these conditions cleared as he reached the shore uh, with the gale-forced winds driving the wind chill to minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 57 degrees Celsius. At 3pm, he arrived at Shaktalik but Sipala wasn't there, though Henry Ivanov was waiting just in case. And with the report of this progress, Welch believed that the serum would arrive in February, uh, and this was key because um, on January 30th, the number of cases in Nome had reached 27 and the antitoxin was depleted, and at this point the dogs were their only hope. Leonard Sipala and his dog sled team, led by his dog Togo, Travelled 91 miles from Nome to from January 27th to January 31st into the oncoming storm, uh, taking the shortcut across the Norton Sound and heading towards Shaklik. The temperature in Nome was pretty warm at 
minus minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit and or minus 29 degrees Celsius. Uh, but in Shatlik, the temperature was about 5 degrees Celsius lower, and gale force winds caused a wind chill of uh, minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 65 degrees Celsius. Togo ran 350 miles for his part of the run. Henry Ivanov's team ran, ran into a reindeer and got tangled up just, out, just outside Shatlik, and believed he still had another 100 miles to go, uh, racing to get to Norton, to Norton Sound before the storm hit. But luckily, he was passing the team when Ivanov shouted, The serum, the serum, I have it here. Now, despite, despite the storm, Sapala received the news of the worst in the epidemic uh, and decided to brave it, setting out once again into the exposed open ice of the Norton Sound. When he, when he reached uh, Ungalik after dark, the temperature was estimated at minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 34 degrees Celsius. But the wind chill made it um, about minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 65 degrees Celsius. Still running through the night uh, in the dark, Togo led the team in a straight line uh, and they arrived at the roadhouse in Isaacs Point on the other side at 8pm. In one day they travelled 84 miles, uh, averaging at about, about 8 miles per hour. The team rested for about 6 hours and departed at 2am into the full storm. During the night the temperature dropped to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 40 degrees Celsius, and the wind increased to storm force, uh, which was at least 65 miles per hour, or 105 kilometers per hour. The team ran across the ice while following the shoreline and returned to the shore to cross Little McKinley Mountain, climbing 5,000 feet, about 1,500 meters, and descending to the next roadhouse in Golovin, where Sipala passed the serum to Charlie Olsen on February 1st at 3 p.m. On the 1st of February, the number of cases in Nome rose to 28. The serum en route was sufficient to treat about 30 people. With the blizzard raging on and winds of 80 miles per hour, or 130 kilometers per hour, uh, Welch ordered a stop to the relay until the storm passed, reasoning that a delay was better than the risk of losing it all, with messages lost at Solomon and at point safety before the lines went dead. However, Olsen was blown off the trail and, and suffered severe frostbite in his hands while putting blankets on his dogs. Uh, with the wind chill being minus 57 degrees Celsius at this point, or minus 70 Fahrenheit. He arrived at Bluff at, on the 1st February at 7pm in poor shape. Gunnar Kessen waited until 10pm, so about three hours, for the storm to break, but only got worse and, and he realised the drifts would soon block the trail, so he departed into a headwind. He travelled through the night, uh, through drifts and river overflow, over the 600-foot top-up mountain, with Belcho with the visibility so poor that Kassen couldn't always see the dogs which were harnessed closest to the sled. He was two miles past Solomon before he realised it, so he kept going. And the winds after Solomon was so severe that his sled flipped over and he almost lost the cylinder containing the serum when it fell off and became buried in the slow, which resulted in him suffering frostbite when he had to use his bare hands to feel for the cylinder. Uh, luckily, he did find it. Um, he reached point safety ahead of schedule on February the 2nd at 3am, and because of this, Edron believed that Kassen was halted at Solomon and was sleeping. But since the weather was improving and it would take time to prepare Ron's team, and Bolton and the other dogs were moving well, Kassen pressed on the remaining 25 miles to Nome, reaching Front Street at 5.30am, with not a single ampule of antitoxin broken, and the antitoxin was forward and ready by noon. Together the teams covered 674 miles in 127.5 hours which was considered a world record and somehow done at extreme sub-zero temperatures in near-blizzard conditions 
and hurricane force winds. A second relay also occurred as um, Margaret Curran from Solomon Roadhouse was infected. However, we won't go into that one at the moment, as this may drag on a bit, a bit longer we do. Now, after all this, the death toll from Diferia in Nome was officially listed as either 5, 6 or 7. Uh, Welsh later estimated that there were probably a, at least 100 more cases among the Eskimo camps outside the city. Uh, among, quote, the Eskimo camps outside the city, the natives have an, a habit of burying their children without reporting the death. 43 new cases were diagnosed in 1926, though they were easily managed with a fresh supply of serum. All participants in dog sleds received letters of commendation from President Calvin Coolidge, and the, Sen and the Senate stopped work to recognise the event. Each musher from the first relay received a gold medal from the H.K. Morford Company, and the mayor of Los Angeles presented a bone-shaped key to the, up to the city to bow to the dog in front of City Hall. Uh, there were quite a lot of uh, there were, this became a big this became a whole thing. Bolter was famous, though um, some of the mushers weren't so happy about this because they because they considered Spal and Togo to be the main heroes of the run. So there was a lot of jealousy going on about that. But I think that stuff um, I'll. I'll leave that, because that's, that's easily looked up. So we're going to skip that bit, and for a little bit more, because that will give us time for one more story. I'll just uh, Yeah, just to finish up, uh, this serum race uh, helped uh, spur the Kelly Act, which was signed into law on February 2nd, uh, which allowed private aviation companies to bid on mail delivery contracts. This caused technology to improve, and within a decade, air mail routes were established in Alaska and the last mail delivery by private dog sled and the contract took place in 1938, uh, and the last US office dog sled route closed in 1963. Uh, dog sledding almost went extinct in the 1960s, after um, snowmobiles became a thing, uh, but became, but has since become a more recreational sport again, especially in the 1970s with the popularity of the Iditarod Trail sled dog race. But anyway, on that I think we can um, cut it there, well, that was the story of the Great Race of Mercy, where 20 mushers and 150 sled dogs saved a small town from a diphtheria outbreak. I'll see you in a minute. And we are back. I uh, hope you enjoyed the last story, because this, this the upcoming one, is also animal themed. So, now we are going to talk about Staff Sergeant Reckless. He was born sometime in 1948. I couldn't find the exact date for that, but Staff Sergeant Reckless was a horse. So let's talk about that, shall we? Sergeant Reckless was a chestnut-coloured horse with. A blaze and three white stockings. Uh, she was estimated to be about three or four years old when she was purchased by members of the United States Marine Corps in October 1952, uh, being sold to the Marines by a young Korean stable boy called Kim Hook Moon. Sergeant Reckless was originally named Achim Hai in Korean, which means morning flame or flame of the morning. Now, Moon sold the horse that he uh, to Lieutenant Eric Peterson for $250 in order to buy a leg prosthesis for his sister, who had stepped on a landmine. Just because I can't remember, she said it earlier. Uh, this was during the Korean War. <laughs> uh, yeah, The horse's breeding was thought to be pr mostly Mongolian, and she was 
quite small uh, standing, only 14 hands high, which is about 142 centimetres, and weighing about 900 pounds. As in October 1952, uh, Peterson received permission from Colonel Eustace P. P. Smoke to buy a horse for his platoon. As based in the mountainous terrain, Peterson needed a pack animal capable of carrying up to nine of the heavy 24-pound shells needed to supply recordless rifles used by his unit, uh, the, which was the recordless rifle platoon of the 5th Marine Regiment. The day after he received permission, uh, on October 26th, um, Peterson, Sergeant Willard Berry, and Corporal Philip Carter drove a jeep with a, tra- with a trailer to this sold r- racetrack where he paid for the horse with his own money. The, the Marines renamed her Reckless as a contraction of the name of the recoilless rifle and a nod to the daredevil attitude associated with those who used the gun. Um, her primary trainer and the person that she was closest to was Platoon Gunnery Sergeant Joseph Laffin, with Private First Class Monroe Coleman being her primary caretaker, and Lieutenant Bill Riley and Sergeant Elmer Lively also involved in the training and care of Reckless. The recordless rifle platoon had its own medical corps, uh, corpsman, Navy hospitalman first class George Doc Mitchell, who provided most of the medical care for Reckless. The Marines taught Reckless battlefield survival skills such as how not to become entangled in barbed wire and how to lie down while under fire. She also learned to run for a bunker when hearing incoming, um, and the pl- platoon called it her hoof training and hoof camp. She was originally kept in the pasture near the encampment, but her gentle disposition soon developed such rapport with the troops that she was allowed to freely roam about the camp, entering tents at will, uh, and sometimes even sleeping inside with the troops, and was known to lie down next to Lefham's warm, sto- warm tent stove on cold nights, and was fond of a variety of foodstuffs, entertaining the platoon by eating scrambled eggs and drinking Coca-Cola and beer. Uh, food couldn't be left atten- unattended around her, as she was known to eat bacon, buttered toast, chocolate bars, hard candy, shredded, re- shredded wheat, peanut butter sandwiches, and mashed potatoes, to the point that Mitchell advised the platoon that she not be given more than two bottles of coke a day. Her, ta- her taste also weren't confined to foodstuffs, as she once ate a horse blanket, and on, a- on another occasion ate $30 worth of Lefham's winning poker chips. Now, Rex's first... Uh, to quote, baptism under fire, came at a place called Headley's Crotch, near the villages of Shangden and Kwakchan. And though loaded down with six recoilless rifle shells, she initially went straight up and all all four feet left the ground the first time the recoilless rifle was fired. Uh, When she landed, she started shaking, but Coleman, her handler, calmed her down. And the second time the gun fired, she merely snorted. And by the, end, by the end of the mission that day, she appeared calm and was seen trying to eat a discarded helmet liner, and even appeared to take an interest in the operation of the weapon. When landing a new delivery route, Reckless would only need someone to lead her a few times, after which she would make trips on her own. And there was a standing order not to ride Reckless, though someone violated that order in December 1952, uh, taking her on a ride that included a sprint for a minefield, uh, though she wasn't injured. Over her life, uh, very few people were allowed to ride her, uh, one of which being Chesty Puller, uh, who was a pretty famous US uh, Marine Corps Lieutenant General. He has a very distinctive face. He is not the hero of this story. We'll talk about her most, her biggest accomplishment. 
It was during the Battle of Panmunjom Vegas, which is also known as the Battle of Outpost Vegas, or the Battle of Vegas Hill. Over March 26th to March 28th, 1953, where she made 51 solo trips in a single day, carrying a total of 386 recoilless rounds, which in total weighed over 9,000 pounds, carrying 4 to 8 24 pound shells on each trip, and covering over 35 miles that day. The whole Battle of Vegas lasted three days. Worth noting, this sometimes, like, from what I read around, sometimes this is said as four days or five days, but I'm pretty certain it's three days after, I've, after looking about a bit. With some of the places actually saying that it's errant, that um, it's said three or f- uh, five days in error sometimes, so. Um, she was wounded twice during the battle. Uh, once she was hit by shrapnel over the left eye, and another time on her left flank. And for her accomplishments during this battle, she was re- she was promoted to corporal. She also did work when not on the front lines, uh, doing things like uh, packing other items for the platoon and getting a lot of use for stringing telephone wire by carrying reels of wire on her back that played out as she walked, being able to string as much wire as 12 men on foot. When the, when the 5th moved from Camp Case to, to Inchon, she became the first horse in the Marine Corps known to have participated in, a, in an amphibious landing. Like, and she, like, her skills were pretty well known. At one point, some Marine members um, posed a reckless and a sign challenging a racehorse to a race called the Paddy Derby, which would be different from a from normal race, being 1.5 miles over paddies and hills, and carrying over, carrying 192 pounds of ammunition with no riders, but they never received a reply. The horse they challenged came in second in the Kentucky Derby, and went on to win the Preakness Stakes and Belmont Stakes. Randolph M. Pate, who was then the commander of the 1st Marine Division, gave Reckless a battlefield promotion from Corporal to Sergeant in a formal ceremony complete with a reviewing stand on April 10, 1954, several months after the war ended. Uh, she was also given a red and gold blanket of insignia and was promoted again to Staff Sergeant on August 31, 1959 at Camp Pendleton, California. This promotion was also awarded by Pate, uh, who was at this point the Commandant of the Marine Corps, who personally presided over the ceremony where Rectus was honoured with a 19-gun salute and a 1,700-man parade of Marines from her wartime unit, being one of the early examples of an animal holding official rank in a branch of the US, in a branch of the US military. For a service in the Marine Corps, Rectus was awarded two Purple Hearts uh, for the wounds uh, received during the Battle of Vegas, a, Mar- a Marine Corps Good Conduct Medal, a Presidential Unit Citation with Bronze Star, a National Defense Service Medal, a Korean Service Medal, the United Nations Korea Medal, a Navy Unit Commendation, and a Republic of Korea Presidential Unit Citation, which she wore on her horse blanket, plus a French uh, Fourager Medal that the 5th Marines earned in World War One. She sailed back to the US from Yokohama on October 22nd uh, and arrived on Oct- November 5th, 1954, uh, as a typhoon had delayed the ship's arrival, being bad enough that she was once knocked out of her stall onto the deck uh, towards the end of the trip. Though once she arrived, it still wasn't without challenges, as-, as the United States Department of Agriculture insisted that a medical check and lab test be completed 
uh, before she disembarked from the ship, which made her late for the marine banquet where she was supposed to be the guest of honour. After her blood was drawn, drawn for lab tests, um, she was allowed off the ship uh, with the understanding that if she had glanders or durine, uh, she would be destroyed or sent back to Japan. To which many of the marines who knew her were, yeah, became angry that she, at what they considered an affront to her honour when she le- when they learned that durine was an, was a equine sexually transmitted disease. The night before she arrived, she once again ate her blanket, but a new one with, rib- with ribbons and insignia was made just in time for her disembarkment. Uh, she was led off the ship by Lieutenant Peterson and set foot on American soil in San Francisco on November the 10th, 1954, which coincidentally happened to be the birthday of the Marine Corps. Uh, and for the Marine Corps birthday ball that day, she rode an elevator and then both ate cake and the flower decorations. She was well cared for for the rest of her life, pretty much, um, producing four foals, one of which unfortunately died a month after birth, and retired from active service with four military honours at Camp Pendleton on November the 10th, 1960, uh, after which she was provided with free quarters and feed in lieu of retirement pay. Sometimes she developed arthritis in the back as she aged and injured herself on May 13, 1968, as she fell onto a barbed wire fence. She would die under sedation while her wounds were being treated, an estimated 19 or 20 years old. Um, there's a plaque and photo commemorating her at Camp Pendleton Stables. The first race at Aqueduct's racetrack in New York was, was designated the, the Sergeant Reckless on November 10th, 1989. And in 1997, Reckless was listed by Life magazine as one, as, as one of America's 100 all-time heroes. And yeah... That was Sergeant Reckless, a horse that's a horse that served much time in battle. And on that, I think we'll cut to a break and then come back with an outro. And we are back. And you know what? I've got another short one for you. So, let's talk about Judy. Judy was a purebred Leverin white pointer dog. Uh, born February 1936 in the Shanghai Dog Tunnels, which was a boarding kennel used by English expats in Shanghai, China. At the age of three months, she escaped and had been kept, kept in the back alley by a shopkeeper until she was six months old. And following an altercation with some sailors from a Japanese Navy gunboat, she was found by a worker from the kennel and returned there. She was originally called Shudi, which was um, anglicised to become Judy. And by the time she returned to her kennel, her mother and siblings were no longer there. So in the, in the autumn of 1936, the Royal Navy crew of the insect-class gunboat HMS Nat voted to get a ship's mascot. Due in part to the, the competitive nature of the gunboats with the HMS B, uh, Cicada and Cricket already having mascots of their own. The captain and chief boatswain's mate, Lieutenant Commander J. Watergrave and Chief Petty Officer Charles Jeffrey purchased Judy from the kennel and presented her to the crew. And as her mother was known as Kelly of Sussex, Judy was listed as Judy of Sussex in her Royal Navy paperwork. Uh, they hoped to train her as a gun dog, but the, man, but the men began treating her like a pet instead. And several days after her arrival, Jeffrey's log stated that the quote, our chance of making her a trained gun dog are very small. 
and her time spent on the street, streets of Shanghai was blamed for her lack of hunting instinct. And the only time she would point in a traditional manner was when she could smell food. Aboard the HMS Nat, her military career began, and Jan Cooper was, um, was given the job of being the keeper of the ship's dog. Uh, she was given an open box and a blanket to sleep on, was trained to stop her from going into certain areas of the ship, uh, such as those inhabited by Chinese cooks, as they disliked her. And in November 1936, she fell overboard from the forecastle into the, Yan- into the Yangtze River and was spotted by Jeffrey. The ship was called to a full stop and a powerboat deple- deployed to retrieve her, with the incident being recorded in the ship's log as a man-overboard exercise. As the boat returned to the Nat, the crew sent a semaphore message, which was, to quote, Judy's christening completed. <laughs> they began finding Judy useful in navigating the river, um, as she was able to alert them to cessboats uh, used to hold waste. They were basically floating cesspools, and Judy was able to alert them in enough time to close all their hatches and minimise the smell. After trials following a refit, the Nat met up with Ladybird, which also had a ship's dog, but Judy had to be kept away, as while he took fancy to her, she didn't care for him. And in the early morning after the Ladybird departed, Judy alerted the ship to the presence of river pirates, who were about to board a Nat in the darkness. The attack was repelled, as the pirates lost the surprise element. Uh, several days later, Judy was taken ashore for, with a shooting party for the first time, but was unsuccessful as a gun dog. And throughout the stay on her, on the Nat, um, the crew would repeatedly try to, to use her as a gun dog, but fa- uh, failing each time. She also pointed out the approach of hostile Japanese aircraft long before any human crew could hear them, uh, f- which first occurred prior to the outbreak of the war, when the aircraft would f- fly low over the Nat, with Judy barking at them as they passed. On an outing to Zhujiang, Jeffrey took, took Judy for a walk outside the city, uh, but she ran ahead, pulling him with her. As he looked back, he realised that she'd been pulling him away from a leopard, essentially saving his life. In November 1937, Nat met with the American river gunboat USS Panay. After Panay held a party for the two ships' companies, the Nat departed and only realised afterwards that Judy wasn't with them. They contacted the Panay via signal lamp, but they insisted that they hadn't seen her. And the following morning, the, cre- the crew heard from a Chinese trader that Judy was on board the Panay after all. In retaliation for this, the crew boarded the American vessel and, sh- and stole their bell and offered, it- and offered it back in return for Judy. Judy was re- returned within the hour. She was um, involved in an incident in October that year, which resulted in, the en- in ending her trips ashore in Hankou. Uh, as while being warped by two sailors from Nat, she, they, were confront, they were confronted by Japanese soldiers who pointed a loaded rifle at Judy. In response, leading seaman Jack Law uh, threw one of the soldiers into the river, after which it was decided that Judy, it would be better for Judy to stay on the ship. In June 1939, several locust-class gunboats arrived on the Yangtze to take over operations from the existing insect-class vessels. Uh, part of the crew of the Nat transferred to HMS Grasshopper, including Judy, and following the British declaration of war on Germany in September that year, several of the gunboats, including the Grasshopper, were redeployed to the British base at Singapore. And initially during the stay, um, Judy stayed with a customs official and his family for a week, and the ship was rarely deployed until January 1942, uh, at which point it was deployed with other gunboats uh, to provide covering bombardment, bombardments along the coast of the Malaya 
for retreating troops, and occasionally to carry out evacuations. By this time, Judy was primarily being looked after by Petty Officer George White. The Battle of Singapore took place between the 8th and 15th February, and on the first day, many, along with other military vessels, Grasshoppers were sailed out to provide anti-aircraft fire, and by the 11th of February, Grasshopper and its, sister, and its sister ship Dragonfly were the largest vessels left at Singapore, before being ordered to evacuate personnel and leave Singapore on the 13th of February, leaving at 9pm that evening. The ships headed for Batavia in the Dutch East Indies, where fearing the Japanese Navy, they um, sought to travel via the Linga Islands, hoping that the islands could be used as a hiding place. On the 14th of February, yeah. Judy um, alerted the crew to the approach of Japanese aircraft, and the anti-aircraft gunners took up their positions. The grasshopper was hit by a single bomb before the plane departed, and Judy was below decks when the when the planes returned. After which, the dragonfly was hit was hit by three bombs, sinking quickly, and the grasshopper was hit by a further two bombs, and the order was given to abandon the ship, as a fire spread close to an ammunition compartment. And yeah, you don't want fire near your ammo ever. Um, the boats were lowered and crew and evacuees were ferried just over 100 yards to the shore while Japanese planes uh, strafed the vessels. Uh, and it was only when they were ashore that they realised that Judy wasn't with them. The island they arrived on was uninhabited with little food and no apparent water. And after a camping set up shore, White was sent back to the floating grasshopper to scavenge supplies. He boarded the vessel and descended, and descended below the decks to search for any items that might be of use. And while there, he felt Judy in the darkness, pinned in her bed under a row of lockers. He made a raft out of materials on the grasshopper and rode the items along with Judy back to the island. The lack of water was becoming an issue. Though, at this point, Judy began to dig at a point on the waterline, and after a couple of minutes, she unearthed a freshwater spring and was credited with saving everyone's lives. Now, during the first night, the magazine on the, on the grasshopper finally caught light and exploded, sinking the vessel. The, sur- the survivors continued to the camp on the beach for the following days, with, with Judy protecting them from snakes. Five days after the grasshopper was bombed, a Tonghang light, light wooden boat arrived, which took the survivors to, the, to Sinkip Island, which is the largest of the Linga Islands, where they left their wounded. Yeah. Judy and the other survivors travelled two days later on a Chinese junk to Sumatra, uh, where it was hoped that a British force remained that could take them to Sri Lanka. Though upon arrival, they, they took the vessel up a series of rivers until they narrowed that junk couldn't pass, yeah. before embarking 200 miles cross-country across the island in an attempt to reach Padang. During the journey through the jungle, Judy was attacked by a crocodile and suffered a cut to her shoulder. We patched up for a six-inch cut uh, with limited first aid supplies, which really shows how important she was to this uh, group. She continued to warn them of approaching predators and... One crewman claimed that she saved that she saved him from a Sumatran tiger. After emerging from the jungle at Suwalunto, they caught the train towards Padang, uh, but they had missed the, evac- the last evacuation ship by nine days. And after the arrival of the Japanese, survivors from the grasshopper, along with Judy, were taken into custody as prisoners of war on the 18th of March. They were initially held in Padang, uh, before being moved to Balawan and they smuggled Judy on board the transport trucks under empty rice sacks. After five days, they arrived at the Goa prisoner of war camp in Medan, and Chief Petty Officer Lend Williams recorded that, uh, to quote, thus began three to four years of the most horrific labour, torture, starvation, 
and every degradation the Japanese could inflict on us. She was looked after by Les by Les so from the Grasshopper, and a private named Cousins, who had a job making leather goods for the guards. Cousins would feed scraps of leather to Judy, uh, but, but died of malaria a short time after. In August, Judy met leading aircraftman Frank Williams, who adopted her and shared his daily handful of rice. In the camp, Judy would intervene by distracting guards when they were administering pun punishment, and was the official animal to have been officially registered as, an, as a prisoner of war during the Second World War, after Frank Williams' intervention to protect the dog from the guards, who would often threaten to shoot Judy as she growled and barked at them. Williams managed to convince the camp commandant, who was drunk on sake, to sign the registration papers with the promise of one of Judy's future puppies, with Judy's official prisoner of war name being 81A Gloa Gloa Madame. During her stay at the camp, she would alert the prisoners to the approach of Japanese guards, and also if other animals such as snakes or scorpions were around. She also made excursions from the camp looking for food, and would bring back ra rats and snakes to Williams. She had a group of puppies, which five survived, and one of which was given to the camp commandant as promised, and another was smuggled into the woman's camp along with any food that a man could spare. A further puppy was given to the Red Cross in Medan, and one was beaten to death by a drunken guard. The final one remained in the camp after Judy and Williams left. In June 1944, the men were transferred to Singapore aboard the SS Van uh, Warwick uh, and renamed to the Harukiku Maru by the Japanese. The dogs weren't allowed on board, but Frank Williams managed to teach Judy to lie still and sit silent inside a rice sack. And when he boarded the ship, uh, she climbed into a sack and Williams, that Williams slung over his shoulder to take on board. For three hours, the men were forced to stand on deck in the searing heat, and for the entire time, Judy re remained still and silent in the bag on his back. The conditions on, on board the ship were cramped with more than 700 prisoners, and on the 26th of June 1944, the ship was torpedoed for the HMS Truslant. Williams pushed Judy out of a porthole in an attempt to save her life, even though there was a 15-foot drop to the sea, and it made its own escape from the ship, not knowing if she'd survived. Over 500 passengers didn't. Frank Williams was recaptured and sent to a new camp without news of Judy's survival, though stories began being told of a dog helping drowning men reach pieces of debris on which to hold, and others recalled how the dog would bring them flotsam to keep them afloat. The dog would also allow men to hold onto her back when suing them to safety. She'd been found in the water by other survivors sinking, and once again hidden from the Japanese. At, upon arrival at a dock, she was found by Les Steele, who tried to smuggle her onto a truck with him but she was discovered by a Japanese captain who threatened to kill her. Though this order was countermanded by the newly arrived former commander of the Medan camp from before, and she was allowed to travel with Seo onto the next camp. Williams was giving up hope of finding Judy when she arrived in his new camp, uh, saying, to quote, I couldn't believe my eyes. As I entered the camp, a scraggy dog hit me square in the shoulders and knocked me over. I'd never been so glad to see the old girl, and I think she's felt the same. After four weeks at the new camp, they were moved back to Sumatra by paddle steamer, uh, being told that they had a special mission to f pick fruit. Instead, they spent a year in Sumatra with the Japanese using the men to cut through the jungle to lay la railway track. Rations were a handful of maggot-ridden tapioca a day, which Frank continued to share with Judy, and she also pr proved useful in conducting trades with the locals, as she would indicate when someone was hiding near her track. Her barking deliberately alerted guards when there was something too large for in the jungle to handle, such as tigers or elephants, and the experience tour changed the dog, with Frank later writing that she wasn't that tame, obedient dog anymore. 
She was a skinny animal that kept herself alive through cunning and instinct. Because of the remoteness of the work camp, she was at a reduced risk from the local population, who Frank feared would eat her. Frank credited Judy with saving his life during his time spent there, saying that she saved my life in so many ways, the greatest way of all was giving me a reason to live. All I had to do was look at her and into those weary bloodshot eyes, and I would ask myself, what would happen to her if I died? I had to keep going, even if it meant waiting for a miracle. A radar man named Tom Scott later wrote that Frank and Judy shared an unusual bond, with Frank being able to send the dog into the jungle with a click and recall her with a whistle. In early 1945, Frank began to find that Judy was more aggressive towards the Japanese and Korean guards. Though he'd normally sent her into the jungle to avoid them, on one occasion the guards gave chase and shot at the dog, and he later found Judy bleeding from the shoulder where she'd been grazed by bullets. Uh, he covered the wound with palm fronds, which, but couldn't do nothing else to treat or reward her. After moving camps once more, Judy was sentenced to death by the Japanese as a part of a plan to control a lice breakout. She disappeared for three days, with the guards conducting sweeps in an attempt to find her. She only reappeared when Japanese forces abandoned the camp. A little bit after, two forces of the Royal Air Force parachuted in and informed the residents that to remain until Allied troops arrived. And Judy was smuggled upon the troop ship at Antona, leading to Liverpool, together with Williams, Sill, and others. She managed to avoid dock police and was delivered into the care of the ship's cook, who ensured she was fed on the voyage home. Frank revealed Judy to the crew after six weeks, as the ship was three days from arriving in Liverpool. Although some low-ranking crew members had become aware of the dock before this, the captain had not. Initially, yeah, he was talked around by Frank, and between the captain and the RAF serviceman, Brian Comford, whose father was a barrister, the authorities were convinced to allow the dog to land. Upon her return to the UK, Judy stayed six months in a quarantine in Hackbridge, Surrey, with Frank visiting regularly, along with a number of servicemen who had known the dog during their internment. Yeah. Six months later, on, April, on 29th April, she was released to Frank, and the pair headed to London, where a ceremony was organised by the Kennel Club, with Chairman Arthur Croxton Smith awarding her a Four Valor Medal. And she became quite well known over over the rest of her life, with with being seen in national newspapers, being interviewed for, by the BBC, uh, etc. On the tenth of May, nineteen forty-eight, the pair left to work on a government-funded groundnut spoon scheme in East Africa. And after two years there, she was discovered to have a mammary tumor, and after an operation removed the growth, a tetanus infection set in, and she was euthanized on the seventeenth of February, nineteen fifty, at the age of nearly fourteen. She was buried in an RAF jacket with her campaign medals being the Pacific Star, the 1939-1945 Star, and the Defence Medal. Frank spent two months building a granite and marble memorial in her memory, which included the plaque which told her life story. And that was the story of Judy the Dog. So, on that, I think we can cut it there, and then come back with an outro. <laughs> back so um just a quick outro let me think what do i need to do here a few shout outs this week it will be to the fiercely altered podcast or the fat pod to all bad things not that one for a while and also cult of domesticity because hi courtney i'm sure you're listening we got a review this week but from nikki thatcher uh so hi nikki thank you for leaving thank you for taking time to leave one 
Uh, it means a lot. Uh, saying, love this podcast, five stars. I'm so glad I stumbled upon this podcast. I've binged all the episodes and I'm so sad to catch up. Well-researched, great quality, and an altogether great show. So thanks so much for that. Oh yeah, I was going to do a quick rundown on the Patreon. So our Patreon thing, um, if you want to support the show, it would mean a lot. Once again, shout out to Chris and Laura, who have already become donors. Uh, you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. So um, at a $1 patron, you gain access to exclusive posts and stuff. Uh, if, I, if I post stuff. Yeah. I'm also in the midst of setting up a Discord channel, which you'll get. And you'll be able to access more channels when like, as a patron, uh, which will have like stuff like episode discussions, we'll have, I can post some articles from time to time, etc, etc. Uh, yeah, for $3 a month, uh, you get all that as well. You get some stickers and you get a shout out when you join. And Five dollars a month, uh, starting at the end of May, you also get con- you also get access to uh, exclusive episodes every two months, uh, along with all the lower rewards. And at ten dollars a month, you get all the lower rewards, and and whenever possible, you get early release episodes, along with a signed print of our logo. I might re- I might rework it a little bit, but um, I'll let you know first, so don't worry about that. And if you have any questions, you can always get in touch with me on social media. Speaking of which, I'm going to talk about that for a bit. Uh, we have Twitter at the Bloody Rocks, Instagram at the Bloody Rocks, Facebook at facebook.com slash Blood on the Rocks. There's also a Facebook group there you can find. What else? What else? What else? And we have an email address at botrpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, cool thing of the week, because I nearly forgot about that one. It's on YouTube. You can, uh, if you search The Fallen of World War II, it's a fantastic like 20 minute video. Uh, which really puts like the numbers into its perspective uh, for for the World War Two period. Um, I definitely recommend checking it out. I think that's everything. So, thank you for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends, and have a great day. I'll see you next week.